I mean, I've had a broken record all school year, kind of on purpose, though, um, reminding you of the background of this letter, why it was written, to whom it was written. And I'm doing that over and over again because by the end of this thing, I, I want to have said it enough that, uh, that you could tell it back to me and, and, and that for the rest of your life, when you open up to the book of Hebrews, you, you immediately and almost instinctively know what's going on. At any point, you drop yourself into the letter. And uh, so what is going on? So the author of this letter, we don't know exactly who wrote it, um, may have been an apostle or an associate of one of the apostles, has been trying to, he's writing this letter, he, he's trying to encourage believers in Christ who had come to Christ out of Judaism, grown up Jews, come to faith in Christ, recognizing him as the Messiah, as the Savior, trusting in him, following him. But we're tempted to walk away from that entirely and go back to their old life in, in Judaism. That was a real temptation for some of them for, for different reasons. I mean, it was going back, for some of it was going back to what was familiar, what they had grown up in. It was going back to what would bring them less hardship, not no hardship, but less of it, less hardship, less persecution. Like I said a bunch of times, it was, it was, uh, it was hard it was hard being a Jew in the Roman Empire that day. It was way harder, though, to be a Christian. Because you not only had the Romans against you, you had the Jews against you. But, but even on top of that, is that, they weren't tempted to go back just because it was easy or easier or familiar. But put yourself in that situation. They didn't feel like they were, they wouldn't have felt like they were going to some other religion entirely. Like they felt like they were going back to something that they were convinced that God had revealed you know and they had scriptures to prove it they had a whole a whole the whole Old Testament to, to say God had God has delivered this this system to us and so it's for that reason that we're in chapter 12 we've covered a lot of ground in Hebrews and we've seen it there's several warnings in the book there's five of them in total we've already looked at four of them we'll look at the last one the last one is here in chapter 12 we'll look at it next week Lord willing but uh it's why in every one of those warnings and everything in between the warnings, he takes a lot of time to show from the Old Testament itself. Like, yeah, we're not denying that God revealed the Old Testament, but read it on its own terms. What was God doing? He was always, even from the very beginning, pointing to something that would surpass it, that would, that would fulfill it, that would replace it, like that would fulfill and replace the Old Covenant, uh, the, the system of Judaism, something more permanent, something more perfect something better if you had to summarize hebrews in one word to be better and that's why like i've mentioned before hebrews is sometimes a challenge to study because not only are the warnings hard in and of themselves to understand but uh but it digs so deeply into the old testament that if you're not all that familiar with the old testament you you can easily get lost in what he's saying or just not even realize the significance of what he's saying so today's passage though is, is an important one and uh, these verses, verses 1 and 2, are, are probably two that you're very familiar with already, at least some of you. Um, so Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we're going to think about persevering in the faith, like I mentioned. So before we go any further, and let's read it together. Um, and uh, this morning I'm actually reading from the NIV. You know why? Because I forgot to bring my Bible to church. So uh, pastors do that too. All right, here we go. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
Let us throw off or, or lay aside everything that hinders or every weight and the sin that so easily entangles or clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance or endurance the race marked out for us or set before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author or founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. And we want to understand it. We want to we understand what you're saying to us here. We want, we're asking, Father, that you would give us minds to understand the truth that is here. You'd give us eyes to see it first and foremost, minds to grasp and understand what you're saying here. Give us hearts to embrace and love that which we learn. Guard us from error in the first place. Love the truth. And give us wills to, to heed whatever it calls us to do. Father, I, I, I feel very keenly uh, the need for your help to teach this morning. And, and uh, we all, whether we realize it or not, need your help to open our ears and our minds and our eyes. So please do that now as we open your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so the, like I said, this is one of the more well-known passages in the letter. It's a very encouraging one. Um, and it, it, I'll say this, because the rest of this chapter is, is the last warning passage. So what we say here this morning really does need to be kept in mind when we come back next week and think about the, the, the final warning passage. Because the, the point he's going to be making today, it, while it is an exhortation, the point he's going to make today is that the, the, the exhortation is persevere, 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 persevere. Run with endurance. Run with perseverance. That's the exhortation. But the, the truth that underlies that and is all around that is that God preserves. God preserves his people in many ways so that they certainly will persevere to the end. Okay? So while the exhortation is out there to persevere, underlying that is this assurance that God is going to preserve me as I persevere to the end. All right? Later in this chapter, come back next week, there's going to be a lot of commands, a lot of warning, uh, but not before, keep in mind, he's given us this assurance. We can be confident that he will we will persevere because God is the one preserving us. So looking more closely at this passage, here's how I want us to see this thing. Um, first, I want us to think about the, the exhortation to persevere to pursue and very actively uh, pursue perseverance and endurance in following Christ. And why? Because he's going to show that it won't happen unless we pursue it. Unless we, unless, uh, it won't happen without our effort. But that being said, as we pursue this perseverance in our, in our Christian life, there's a couple of things he wants to, to remind us of as we run. And first is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over this race he's calling us to run. This is something that those wavering in their faith in that day and still today might be tempted to doubt, but it's one of our deepest comforts in the Christian life. And the other angle, though, that he wants to remind them of as they, as they persevere is God's faithfulness. That's really prominent here. God is not just sovereign over our lives. He's not just sovereign, but he's good and faithful. And he shows here uh, 
God's faithfulness to those who have gone before us, his faithfulness to Christ, his point, he's faithful to us. So let's dive in and think first about the exhortation to run the race with perseverance. Look at how he opens again, verse 1. Therefore, uh, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Everything else he's going to say in this chapter that we're going to look at this week and next, really everything else, this whole passage revolves around this phrase here in verse 1, let us run with endurance. Let us run with perseverance. Now to describe the Christian life, um, he uses the imagery of of running a race. And we'll say more about that in just a minute. But for now, the emphasis is is on the uh, the fact that the the Christian life is a a race that we have to run with endurance. We, We have to persevere in this thing. And it requires endurance on our part, effort and struggle and strain. And, and, and patience, persevere. And so the thing we need to realize and be clear on is this. Is, one thing is, we can expect that the Christian life is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Why else would you describe it as endurance being the thing that we need? It's hard. It implies that it's hard, and it is hard. Because... Because there are things fighting against us in this, in this race. There's things pushing against us as we're trying to strain forward, if you, to use that imagery. And he says in this verse that to endure faithfully in Christ, we're going to need to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. I want you to think about that. Lay aside every weight, comma, and sin. That clings so closely. Every weight and sin. Those those are not two ways of saying the same thing. Those are two different things. But but both are hindrances to your faithful running of a race in in Christ. There there are things in our lives, in other words, these weights. Let it lay aside every weight. There are things in our lives that are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves. Right? But they are nevertheless weights. Think about, think carefully through that. Because we can justify a great many things in our lives because they're not in and of themselves sinful. But they are nevertheless weights. You, the, I, I, was, I was tempted to, uh, it's, it's, when I think about this, it's hard to give application to it because there's so many. So I just got to pick one. And I pick a big one in my life, and I know a big one in your life, and you probably can guess what I'm going to say. What is a weight that's not necessarily a sin? It's distraction. The weight of distraction. I feel that in my own life. We all do. Um, We do it because of our phones. We are allergic to still and quiet. We talked about distraction last semester, last in the fall, in a, one week in CBS, in our cross-culture series. We talked about how it's, it's always been a, a weight in the Christian life. Like, like, distraction is always a temptation. It's just, it's just that it's getting way worse exponentially right now. 500 years ago, which reminds me of a couple of things I said last, last fall, 500 years ago, the French philosopher... And theologian Blaise Pascal wrote this. 
The only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet it is the greatest of our miseries. For it is that above all which, above all which prevents us thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. Diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death. That was 500 years ago. I mean, you can tell from that, Pascal didn't have a very optimistic <laughs> estimation of our desire for uh, distraction. But he, he understood there that it doesn't just hinder us um, in our daily work, whatever that might be, but it numbs us. It numbs us even more so to spiritual things. Because the habit of distraction, it is a habit. It's a habit that we re reinforce over and over and over again, so it's a, it's a deep, more deeply ingrained habit, not just of uh, our physical bodies, but of our minds. The habit of distraction and diversion bleeds over into our ability to pray and our ability to read and, and focus on the Word, our ability to really to focus on anything. It's probably hard to focus on me right now. <laughs> and it's gotten worse. One of the books that I recommended to you last semester was Tony Reinke's book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And at one point he said in that book, we check our smartphones about 81,500 times each year or once every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives. And I remember saying then that 4.3 minutes seems generous. That's a weight. That's a weight. It's a weight that is not in and of itself sinful. Like, is it, is, it a, is it a sin for me to pick up my phone and check the score of a game? No. No. But it can certainly lead to it every 4.3 minutes of my life. Like, it, it, it keeps me from the Word. It keeps me from prayer. It keeps, it keeps us from simply thinking about God or spiritual things at all. Psalm 27, 4. It's rehearsing some of the things that I said last fall. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that, I, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Seems to require a, a, a singleness of mind that is able to think undistracted. Something that we're moment by moment, by moment every 4.3 minutes, generously speaking, day by day, training ourselves to be unable to do. We have to be mindful of things in our lives that are weights. They're not just sins. They're, they're weights, though. They're weights in our lives. And whatever specifically that, that looks like for you, like, be mindful of what that is. Do what the, the author of Hebrews says and, and, and lay it aside. Or, or as the NIV says, throw it off. Lay it aside for the sake of filling your soul with the things that will help you persevere faithfully in Christ. But he's, he distinguishes that from sin. Lay aside every weight and, and the sin that clings so closely. That, that word translated clings so closely, clings closely, um, has, it has the idea of easily entangling us. 
easily entangles us. It means, means the longer we fall to it, the harder it becomes to resist the temptation. It e- easily ensnares us. So when the author of Hebrews says in this very first verse that we have to run the race of our lives with endurance, he says that because for one thing, it's, it's, it's hard. Christian life is hard. The life of the mind in the Christian life is hard. Um, gaining gaining uh, victory and, and governance over the desires of your heart. Hard. Because on top of the sinfulness of our own hearts, it's already there. Um, there are things, people, there are people, relationships, um, all kinds of things that are just weights. But there's another reason, he says, to run with endurance. Not just because it's hard, and it is. But he, he exhorts us to run with endurance and perseverance because Scripture commands it. It's necessary. It's necessary for our salvation. I'll say it that way. Like Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. John said in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not all of us. What is he saying? Genuine believers persevere and endure faithfully in Christ to the end. What he says. That should motivate us to lay aside every weight and every sin and press on in Christ. And follow hard after Him. The mark of followers of Christ is that they follow. And keep following. The mark of a follower of Christ is that they are aware when they slip. And they are aware when they slip and fall and are sliding into disobedience. And they don't want to stay there. So if it's... And I'm I'm preaching to myself at the same time. If a sin sin in my life is pointed out to me, I don't want to justify it. I I want to walk the other way. If a weight is pointed out in my life, as hard as that will be, I don't want to stay there. That's certainly not the first time we've come across that idea when we've seen one warning passage after another in Hebrews saying the same thing. There is a danger against falling away. But perseverance to the end is the mark of a genuine believer. Falling away isn't losing a salvation you once had. Falling away is demonstrating there was never life to begin with. So run with endurance the race that is set before you. Get rid of every weight. Fight to kill every sin that is keeping you from loving Christ with your whole heart. Following Him with all your passion and with all your might. But can we be confident we'll do that? Can we be confident that we'll do that? I said at the outset of this uh, talk that the main point he's making in these opening verses is that God preserves. God preserves in so many ways um, his people so that they most certainly will persevere to the end. Okay? So how does this passage show that? So according to this passage, what assurance does God give us that he will, in fact, preserve us? So that we will persevere to the end. And I think the first way he does that is by reminding us of God's sovereignty. Where do we see evidence in, this, in these opening verses that God is, is sovereign over our lives? Well, in the very verses that we've already been looking at, in the opening verses, and in the whole analogy comparing our lives to a race that we're running. Again, in verse 1 he says, 
Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race that is set before you. The race that is set before you. Not just the race, but there's a race that's already been set before you. You see that? Like it's a race that is already marked out for you. The whole thing is already laid out for you. It's not an aimless thing. Like the path is already there. God and God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. Think about the picture of God that the whole of Scripture gives us. God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He is the one, according to Psalm 139, in whose book are written all the days of our lives before even one of them comes to be. Jesus told Peter, even as a young man, Jesus told Peter by what kind of death he would die. Jesus, the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul in a dangerous situation, don't worry, you're not going to die because I'm promising you're going to make it safely to testify before Caesar. James even had to tell us that we shouldn't say privately that, that today or tomorrow we're going to do this or that, but if the Lord wills, we'll do that. He's, got, he's, he's already marked it out. He, he's sovereign over the race of our lives that we're called to run. Job knew this. Job knew this. When the worst imaginable tragedy happened to him in his life, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. When Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers, he told them years later when he finally saw them face to face, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God was sovereign over the race of Joseph's life that included falling into slavery, being, being exalted to second in command. Why were these people, why was Job not resentful? Of it? Why was Peter, when, when, when Jesus revealed to Peter about what kind of death that he would die and it wasn't a comforting one? Or, 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 or Job or Joseph, why were they not resentful of it? Because at the same time that they were that God had shown them that He was sovereign over their lives, He had also shown Himself to be good and faithful. It's not just that He's sovereign. Don't isolate God's sovereignty from every other characteristic of God. And don't think about His faithfulness apart from His sovereignty. The, 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 the attributes of God are like, um, are like a light shining through a prism. You know, They're, they're all there. All at one time, but you turn it a certain way, you see one particular thing, but it's never isolated from the rest of them. One of the ways that God preserves His people so that they will most certainly persevere to the end is that He's sovereign over their lives. He's already marked out the end from the beginning. But also, from that position of sovereignty, He's also good and faithful. We see this in this passage in, in a couple of ways. Certainly, again, back in the opening Words that call our attention back to the last chapter. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are they? All the ones in chapter 11. All the ones who died in faith in the last chapter. Why did they all die in faith? Because they trusted the faithfulness of God to keep His promises to them. The God who had promised in Jeremiah 32, I think it's verse 40. 38, 39, 40. I will never stop doing good to them. My people. 
God who assured us through Paul, Romans 8, 28, that, that he, he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We have a whole history of those who have gone before us as a testimony to the faithfulness of God in their lives. Why tell us that? Why, why give us that whole list of names about God's faithfulness to all these people in the Old Testament? Because God doesn't change. We're told he was faithful to them so that we will know he will be faithful to us too. But the focal point of these opening verses are not, I know it opens up with therefore and it talks about this great cloud of witnesses. But they are, they are not the focal point of these opening verses. They are not the ones on whom we are commanded to fix our eyes. Are they? No. We're commanded in, in the focal point of these opening verses and the one on whom we're to fix our eyes is, is Christ who's gone before us. He says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that, that takes the encouragement e even further. Not j it further than, hey, look how God was faithful to these other people in the past. He'll be faithful to you. This ramps it up another notch. Because while reminding us that God has been faithful to other believers will show us that God doesn't change. He'll be faithful to you. Showing us that how God the Father was faithful to Christ is at the same time showing us that God has already been faithful to you perfectly so that you will persevere to the end. We look to Jesus because it says he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. I don't want to give you, I don't want to talk about Greek every time I get up here, but the, the Greek in that phrase, it doesn't say. I don't know why they translate it this way. It doesn't say he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. It actually says the. He's the founder and perfecter of the faith. The faith. Not just your personal faith, but the faith, the Christian faith, the, the whole Christian faith. Meaning that he wasn't living our life just to be our example. He was living it to be our substitute, to accomplish the salvation for everyone who would believe. The founder and the perfecter of those who put their faith in him. That's why the focus here is on what he did on the cross. Because while God was faithful to him throughout his life, the focus is on the culmination of his saving work for us in his death and resurrection. And in that way, because God was faithful to Christ in his saving mission, he has already promised and provided perfect faithfulness to you. Because when he was, when he was being faithful to Christ to the end of his life, he was already being faithful to you to the end of yours because you're in Christ. What happened to Christ happens to you by faith. Where he goes, you go. And Jesus already said back in John 6, this is the will of the Father that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. So you have this, you have this exhortation. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. It's going to be hard. There's weights in your life. There's sin in your heart that you need to, to fight and kill. 
But you put both of these truths together, that God is both sovereign over your life and good and faithful in your life. And you have the assurance that he will bring his saving purpose to pass in your life if you're trusting in Christ. So when you press on, press on in that assurance. All right, let's pray.